It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I'm David Gardner, and it is Mailbag Week. It is the final Wednesday of this month. Therefore, we go to the mailbag. And the only reason we have a mailbag is because you fill it up. And thank you for your good questions this week. A reminder, we're always rbi at fool.com or at rbi podcast on Twitter. You can tweet or email questions, and I'll already be getting ready for next month's mailbag. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We still have May to go. You know, May's been a remarkable month in the Washington, D.C. area. 18 of the first 23 days of May featured rain, and the average afternoon high was 15 degrees cooler than it was last May, May of 2015. So, we are just having our first day of sun as I tape uh, on May 24th in quite a long time. In fact, for the first time, the temperature will go over 80 degrees here in the Washington, D.C. area for the entire month of May. Truly remarkable. All right. Well, with that said, a cool and rainy month. Let's go for some cool and rainy mail. Let's start it off with at small cap Danny. Dan Schmitty dropped this simple note. He said, "All else equal, would you rather start a new position or add to a winner? Would you rather start a new position or add to a winner?" Well, first of all, Dan, let me just say. Good job that you're asking that question. Sounds to me like you have some money that you're ready to invest, and you're actively thinking about where to put it best. My best answer for you is, it's all about context. Context is probably one of my very favorite words. I think I've mentioned it before on our podcast, but I think it's something that a lot of us need to pay attention to, not just in investing, but in life in general. I don't have a lot of hard and fast rules that I live by. Maybe I should have a few more, but I've got a couple. But for the most part, I try to figure out where am I at this stage of, let's say, life or the month or in this physical geographical location or with this person, not that person, right? It's all about context all the time. So, your question is a contextual one. Because whether I would start a new position or add to a winner comes down to how I'm already invested. So, I start new positions when either A, I have an exciting new stock that I'd really like to add to my portfolio that I don't have in my portfolio, or B, if I am still in the process of building up a portfolio. So, those are two really great reasons to start new positions. You know, a lot of people who start Motley Fool Services, let's say Motley Fool Stock Advisor, our most popular service, a lot of them have not necessarily bought individual stocks before. It isn't taught in our schools. It's not something, if, unless you were raised on it, it doesn't occur naturally. Uh, coconuts don't fall off of palm trees, knock people in the head and go, you know, I should actually, now that I've been hit in the head with that, I should start buying individual stocks. If we even think about saving money and investing, and I hope we all do, most of us just go right into funds, because that's the conventional wisdom, and that's the simple answer. But for most new members of Motley Fool Stock Advisor, if you're at zero stocks, we want you to get to 15 stocks as quickly as possible. Then you're an investor building a portfolio. You have a portfolio. You don't just have a hope and a prayer on one or two ticker symbols. You're becoming a fool, capital F. So, that's a great reason to start a new position when you're just building up a portfolio. When do we add to winners? By contrast, well, to close this one, Dan, we add to winners particularly when we don't have enough of that winner. 
Um, for me, almost any large position that I have in my portfolio has only gotten there through either one of two ways. Number one, it's appreciated to become that. Or number two, I've added to it over the course of its appreciation. In either case, it ends up being an outsized position based on merit, as I think of it. You know, there's no substitute for performance out there, and I really like stocks in my portfolio. If they're going to occupy a larger allocation, if they're if I'm going to tie my financial destiny more to this ticker rather than that one, it darn well better be because that company has performed its stock and its corporate performance are exceptional. And that's when those are the kinds of companies that I look to add to. But if you've also done really well with the stock, then sometimes you don't need to add to that winner. You might already have an outsized position because of how it's done. So, there's a little bit of a meditation for you about whether you'd rather start a new position or add to a winner. Thank you, Dan, for the good question. Next one up. This one, number two this month, is not actually a question. This is me poking around on Twitter and finding one of the people who follows me. This is going to be a surprise to him if you're listening, Randy Wellington, because at Wellington Randy, uh, who is a follower of Rule Breaker Podcast, and uh, I think I probably follow Randy too. And Randy, you have a good quote in your profile. Here's your Twitter profile quote as of May 2016. This one's from George Orwell. Quote, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle." End quote. Doing a little bit of research, I discovered this is from George Orwell's essay entitled, In Front of Your Nose. I'm going to read a little bit more than just the quote, though, and then we're going to talk briefly about this quote. So, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle, wrote Orwell. One thing that helps toward it is to keep a diary, or at any rate, to keep some kind of record of one's opinions about important events. Otherwise, when some particularly absurd belief is exploded by events, one may simply forget that one ever held it." End quote. So, a little bit more from Orwell's essay beyond that one quote that Randy highlights. So, one of the things that I love about Motley Fool Caps and what we do at the Motley Fool is we keep score. And there is no substitute for keeping score. If you don't keep score, you're really not sure how you're doing with that stock or your portfolio. You need to know how the market's doing. In my, in my experience, I love to benchmark my performance against the stock market's average. It's really important. And if you make a crazy decision, a bad decision, as Orwell talks about, if some particularly absurd belief is exploded by events, there is no getting away from the fact that you picked that stock when you did. And, uh, and you have that opportunity to learn from that. And if, if you're not doing that, if you're not recording how you're doing, then it's very hard to know how to improve. But back briefly then to Randy's quote, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. I have two short stories around this. The first is the United States of America, according to a Biz Insider graphic that my friend Brian Richards put up on Twitter a few weeks ago, the United States of America, as a percentage of the world's market cap, you ready for this? Take a quick guess. What percentage of the overall market capitalization of all stocks on planet Earth are U.S. stocks? And if you were guessing above 30%, you're right. If you're guessing above 
50%, you're actually right. Not by much, but the U.S. occupies 53% of the world's total market cap. I think that's pretty fascinating. We're often, especially in the United States of America, hearing about how big China is becoming, and um, and that's often perceived as a threat. The new century has been sometimes described as China's century. 20th century was America, 19th century was Britain, etc. But when I really look at what's happening uh, in front of my nose, what I see is innovation happening. And I see it most clearly in the United States of America, where there is freedom of speech and freedom of opportunity to start businesses. And while there is a lot of regulation, probably more than I'd like, there's a lot more opportunity still in the U.S. This is not a chauvinistic, in the old sense of the term, reflection. I was personally surprised to see that the U.S. is more than half the world's market cap. But it does accord with my own expectations when it comes to where all the venture capital money is and why it's there. Silicon Valley is a big place where venture capital money is today. It's there because I think the best opportunities are there. There's an ecosystem, not just in California, but in the United States, of starting businesses, allowing them to fail, allowing the big ones to succeed, and raising raising the stakes for everybody, shareholders and consumers alike. So, I'm really happy to note that. And to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. That's just a fact today. And it's something that I think is surprising to a lot of us. And my second story, and I admit, this is a little bit more of an extended point, but I guess it's because I love this Orwell quote, and I want you to think about it too. I hope you agree with me. But to me, the tiredest cliche in contemporary stories, particularly movies, but video games, novels, movies, TV, movies, is that the bad guy is a large corporation that either has an evil, murderous CEO or is doing desperate things trying to keep up with the competition or to correct or simply hide some horrible secret, secret mistake that it's made. I don't have the statistic, but I did recently hear of somebody did a study that shows that CEOs commit murder in popular media like movies at a rate something like a thousand times that they actually do in real life. You know, running neck and neck is, of course, big government as the bad guy. Um, I'm not a fan of bad companies, and and some of them I've shorted in the past, which we'll talk a little bit later this week about. Um, I'm not a fan of big government either, which can be slow-moving, unresponsive, sometimes an uninspiring employer. Yes, there are some corrupt politicians too. But back to Orwell, you know, these things are really will o' the wisps, and we're faking ourselves out, aren't we? I mean, what's in front of my nose is that so much of the bad stuff in the world. Doesn't come from big, bad, ugly corporations and evil, big government. I think the the real truth is that most of the bad stuff in the world comes from individuals, people like you and me. It's in our own hearts, and and maybe we're just bad or inept at times in critical situations. Big companies are actually operating at a level of transparency today that is far greater than ever before, and and I think it's not quite as true, but almost equally true. Of government, so these entities are going wrong all the time, but I think the percentages are off. I mean, individuals from crazy mass shooters to a simply immoral or self-seeking, I don't know, family patriarch or matriarch or even a grandchild are so often doing wrong and damage in the world. It's not a great message for Hollywood, though, because to make the individual the bad guy, I think it's just too close to home for each person who bought a seat that night at the cinema. And so it doesn't play well or strong, but it's very evident, and Orwell emboldens me to see that 
and to say it this week. So, we need to look a little bit more in our own hearts. And if you're a new novelist, or if you're penning a movie script, or you're building a video game, I'm getting personally a little bit tired of the whole big corporations and big government are the evil bad guys. All right. Thank you, George Orwell, and thanks, Randy Wellington. Okay, number three this week. This one is from at Smart Dividends. That is his or her Twitter handle. Thank you, at Smart Dividends. You simply wrote, It was great to hear your interest in Twitter. Too much underlying value in all of their information. Green thumb up, five plus years. Well, thanks. And in fact, on Caps, that's exactly what I did in conjunction with our podcast earlier this month, in which I talked about five stocks for a thinking world, and I mentioned to you the importance of scoring, which I've already double-underlined this week. And so, yes, I put a green thumb on Twitter myself over the next several years. I did go and look at some quick stats on Twitter before we move to our next mailbag item. Twitter had about $2.2 billion in sales in 2015. Get this, that is more than three times Twitter's revenue just two years before. Pretty remarkable. The company had more gross profit last year than it had sales in 2013. So we're talking about an extremely rapid growth situation. What's held down Twitter is that the company is unprofitable. It lost $450 million on those $2.2 billion of sales. However, Twitter also spends upwards of $800 million on research and development, or did anyway last year. So, if the company simply slashed its R&D budget significantly, it could look profitable. But like a lot of good long-term stories, I believe that Twitter is building and planning and investing for the future. This is a company that certainly could be profitable if it wanted to, but it isn't. And last quick stat for a company that these days is trading just under $10 billion, in overall market capitalization, so it's now lost the what is that? Eleven figures club. It's down just to ten figures when we're expressing numerically the market cap of Twitter. The company has more than two billion dollars more cash than debt. Yes, checking the balance sheet, Twitter has in cash and cash equivalents and short-term investments. As of the close of last year, $3.4 billion in cash. It has $1.5 billion of long-term debt. So, we're talking about a company with a $9 or so billion market cap, and two of that is in net cash. Looks good to me. Next one up, number four this month. We're, by the way, going to have a shorter number of items this month, because I think I'm going long in a few of these. So, send me more mail, and I'll do more next month. Okay, this one is from at Kurt Elia. I think, Kurt, you dropped us an email. Thank you. I'm going to read this this in its entirety and think, think on it throughout. So, here we go. Number one. Hi, David. First, I want to thank you for how you and The Motley Fool have changed my investing life. As a longtime rule breaker and recent stock advisor subscriber, and formerly a Hidden Gems guy, I have really loved the ability to choose my own investments while knowing that the team of analysts at The Fool has my back. This lets me keep a much more diversified portfolio of stocks than I ever could have if I needed to research all of the companies on my own. And the fact that you have always kept score lets me know that I'm getting my advice from a team who has a track record worth emulating. Pause. Thank you, Kurt. That's really kind of you to say. Now, your question. Return to the text. My question for you is this. How much should we let our experience as a customer of a company impact our decision to invest 
in that company. After my shares of Tesla popped to an eight-bagger a few years ago, Kurt writes, I decided I had better check out the product. After doing so, I was so impressed that I bought a Model S. The fantastic quality of the car and awesome customer experience has been one of the factors that has made me so comfortable continuing to hold the shares. I'm going to pause it there for a second and say, I totally agree. Return to your tech. Now, on the flip side, you write, after my Bank of Internet stock tripled, I decided to open up an account there. My experience has been uniformly frustrating. For a company that is supposed to be the king of the internet, I found their web and mobile portals clunky and hard to navigate, and worse, their servers seem to be down a lot, something I've never experienced with my brick and mortar banks. To what extent, Kurt then asks, should I let these experiences bias me? either in favor of or against being a shareholder. While it seems intuitive that they should go together, and with Tesla and Amazon, they certainly have, experiences like selling Netflix way too early when their operational troubles caused hiccups in their DVD delivery times, which they later corrected, or holding Lending Club all the way down since I've been such a happy investor there, have made me wonder if I shouldn't try to dissociate my customer experience from my investing. I'd love to hear your take on this. Thanks again for all you've done. Continue to do for the individual investing community. Full stop. Thank you, Kurt, for a nice note. I wanted to read it in its entirety, not just because it contains some really nice things about The Motley Fool, but because you've really thought well out loud about what it means to be both a consumer and an investor, and how much we should associate those two things with each other. Peter Lynch famously told us all in his book, One Up on Wall Street, and a lot of his work over the last few decades, to, as we've often said, buy what you know. And in general, I do this as an investor. Kurt, sounds like you do too. Uh, The good news is, I think it works more often than not. So, the percentages are on your side when you're buying or selling based on your own experiences. Now, I'm the first to say, and you know it too, that it's a sample size of one, how you feel about something, or I do. And you and I happen to agree on both Tesla and Amazon. Um, I've not tried Lending Club, and I have not opened up a Bank of Internet account. But beyond that sample size of one, what I've always found really helpful is to have a community around me. And that's why a key feature, I think, of The Motley Fool and Fool.com since we started a couple decades ago has been that we have an opportunity to learn from each other. So, one of my favorite features of Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor, which you mentioned, are our discussion boards, where I can go onto a discussion board and ask other people about Bank of Internet and say, hey, is this the experience you're having as well? In fact, the reason I ended up buying a Tesla Model S was because of the incredibly great comments about the car that I read right there in our Rule Breakers discussion board by other people who had already bought a Model S. So, I think, again, if you're investing this way, the percentages are on your side, but I'm adding in that you should seek additional perspective, input, sometimes even counsel from what I think of as my fellow fools out there on our discussion boards. And whether or not you use the Motley Fools discussion boards, you have that opportunity if you're in an investment club or just talk at the water cooler at work, friends, family, acquaintances, what they think of this or that company. Some of my best stock picks have simply come from a friend or family member telling me, hey, have you tried this new consumer experience? So, I think it's really important to have those things aligned. And in closing, um, one of my biggest questions about Bank of Internet is, in fact, how good it will make its consumer experience. We did not recommend B of I for Rule Breakers because 
it was an outstanding consumer experience. We recommended it because we like its superior model dispensing with bricks and mortar and therefore offering better interest rates to its account holders. And so that's the model. But I've always said for that stock and that company, I want to see an excellent consumer experience for you to really level up to be one of my favorite companies, which it isn't right now, although it is certainly an active and recent stock pick in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Anyway, Kurt, thank you very much. I hope that was helpful. Okay, two more, two short ones to close. This first one from Christian Ruining. Now, Christian, the O in his last name of Ruining has a strike through it, clearly implying to me that Christian is speaking a native language that I don't speak that well. So I apologize, Christian, if I didn't get your last name right. I'm pretty sure you're listening in from Europe. I'm guessing Scandinavia. You wrote, David, thank you for a fantastic podcast. I'm listening to all your podcasts and subscribe to your services. How do you and your brother Tom agree on who picks which stocks, as I'm sure you run into some conflicts? And uh, it's a fine question. Christian, here's what Tom and I do. My team and Tom's team, each month, we work together, figure out what our team pick is going to be, and then we submit it to our editor, the person who runs that service. I have no sense of what Tom or his team is going to pick. And I think the same is generally true on their side. And it so happens that at no point in the last 12 years, actually, I'm sorry now, boy, time's flying, 14 years of Motley Fool Stock Advisor, have we ever come up with the exact same stock idea the same month? So, 14 times 12, let's see, uh, it's about 160, 170 now, rounding up. 170 times that we've picked stocks, and we've never actually overlapped. That said, um, I do remember with Chipotle, we picked it for Rule Breakers, and the very same week, they were picking it for Motley Fool Hidden Gems. So, sometimes we like to say great minds do think alike here at Fool HQ, but I think the motley nature of our company encourages each of our advisors and analysts to think independently, and therefore, we tend to come up with lots of different ideas. I do want to mention that there has been a tendency sometimes to recommend stocks later on that somebody else earlier suggested at The Motley Fool. I think Tom uh, partly got into Netflix, let's say, through Stock Advisor, because he noticed that I'd picked it first, and he, he liked the idea, too. And I think a lot of members appreciate it when the brothers agree. In fact, I have friends of mine, and this always burns me up just a little bit, who said, I didn't even buy Netflix when you said so, Dave. It wasn't until your brother Tom said, Netflix, that I was like, both guys like it, I'm in. The good news is that was a lot of years ago, and anybody who's still holding is going to be happy. But there's a brief meditation on how we pick stocks here at The Motley Fool. And last up this month is Jester Bobbity. I'm guessing that's not your real name, Jester Bobbity. I do notice in your email address you have the phrase Dark Jester, which I have mixed feelings about, but I do kind of like. And you write this, and this is Dark Jestery, in fact. Here it is Why don't you short stocks anymore? Please lend me thine wisdom, for sooth I may uh, have at thee. Okay, let's kill the old English for now, Jester Bobbity continues. You mentioned in episode 47 you don't short anymore, but that it was a useful skill. I subscribed to your Rule Breakers service at the beginning of the year. I've been happy with the results. If you have a system to buy winners at a risk of 9, then why wouldn't you short a risk rating of 25? 
Is there a scenario in which you would advise shorting, or is this simply a strategy you've deemed to be small f foolish? Thanks for your time. Love the show. Love the service. Signed, Jester. Thank you for a, an excellent question. There are actually a lot of questions in there. Too many more than I would have time to tackle at the end of this week's mailbag. But I'll say this. I still like shorting a lot. I don't short just because it doesn't fit within the services that I'm running at The Motley Fool. Um, Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor we think of as long only. I think long only is good because we tend to make more money investing long, holding patiently, than we do shorting the stock market. Also, The Motley Fool's following has built up large enough now that for us to come out with a short position uh, would cause probably a lot of short-term activity and a lot of price movement that we really don't want to cause in the market uh, around any short picks that we make. Um, I do appreciate your point about risk ratings. It's going to be hard to find any stock with a risk rating of 25 for those who know our risk rating system, which I covered um, a few months ago in this podcast in three separate segments. So you can listen and learn more about risk ratings if you're new to rule breaker investing. But a risk rating of 25 would be a truly horrendous entity and probably such a smaller microcap stock that you couldn't actually short it anyway. So, so to close, Dark Jester, I absolutely appreciate shorting. Shorting is nothing more than reversing the traditional buy low, sell high. You're just doing it in different chronological order. You're selling high and then hoping to buy low later. And that's how I view it. I also, while I don't have any short positions and haven't for quite a long time in my own portfolio, if I did it, I would keep it as a small minority of my portfolio. And our tendency in shorting over the years was to look for companies that are already broken and figure they'll get even more broken. Stocks that have already lost a lot of value and companies that are losing lots of money and have no protection against that on the balance sheet. They have weak balance sheets with way too much debt. Those are the companies that I've shorted in the past. I hope you enjoyed this week's mailbag. Thanks a lot for all of your questions. This has been Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. I look forward to June. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.